Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Abdu Murray. Well, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to be with you all this morning. Thank you so much for uh, the warm welcome earlier today, and or this morning, I should say. Uh, the day's gone far longer than in my mind than, than it actually has. Um, uh, wonderful to be with everyone this morning, especially here at my home church. What a what a what a blessing it is! It's always a blessing to be here and spend time with you all, especially during Advent. One of my favorite times of the year, for the record. Um, I want to get into it actually right away because there's a lot I want to share with you guys and uh, there's a compacted amount of time to share with you a lot of information. Hopefully it won't be an information download. In fact, one of the themes I want to share with you today is that oftentimes information can come at such a breakneck pace and our lives actually are not the kind of thing where we're geared towards taking in that much information, but also the way in which we respond to information isn't just a matter of cognitive understanding. You know, all this stuff comes in and all this uh, um, data that we get nowadays, and it's not a new phenomenon, by the way, we're just getting it in different ways, but people can often miss the story behind it all. They can miss the import behind it all because the daily business of life because there's certain emotional issues, there's certain baggage, there's certain ambitions, there's certain things, even sin in our lives that prevent us from seeing some things. So I don't want to necessarily just completely download something to you, but there's a lot to share because there's so much, I think, in the biblical narrative that if we would see, and there have been those throughout the centuries who could see something in the scriptures who could have seen something in ancient days when they could have seen something that could have signaled to them that the Messiah was to be born within their time frame and was to come and was to do something remarkable, not just teach a bunch of good things, but do something about human sin. So I want to just go right into that, uh, by the way, because what I want to show you is, a, is, is various scripture verses from multiple places in the Bible uh, to essentially weave a pattern to show you that I think as you see each thread of the scripture sort of coming together and knitting together, that you'll see that hopefully what you'll see is that each thread of scripture becomes a tightly woven pattern, possibly even tighter than the swaddling clothes that held the baby that they were all about in the first place. So let's look to Luke chapter 24. Now, I'm gonna set it up a little bit. The story is, of course, an Easter story, which is an interesting thing to start a Christmas message off on. Um, But this is important because Easter is the reason we celebrate this holiday in the first place. Um, And so the story is, of course, of the two disciples, Cleopas and a a person whose name we do not have, uh, who are going on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. This is after Jesus' death, and these men are shattered. They're absolutely shattered by what's happened because of what they had expected, their expectations, their dream was that the Messiah that they had followed, the man who they had seen perform miracles, who had done amazing things, this man was eventually going to vanquish the occupying Romans and eventually set up God's kingdom on earth in their lifetime right in front of their eyes. That's what they had expected to see. And then, of course, they saw their, their Messiah, the leader, the one who they followed for those years, crucified by those very same Romans and die a humiliating, ignominious death. 
And so they're walking away from that city on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking with each other. Uh, by the way, as it's a little sort of aside, here's the little things that I find interesting. When you encounter the scriptures in a way that is um, intimate, but also understanding details, you have to ask yourself a bunch of questions. And I think sometimes when you ask these questions, beautiful answers actually pop up. Why is Cleopas named? <laughs> Why not the other guy? And by the way, have you ever heard of Cleopas after this? And not before. Do you know why? The likelihood is, is that Luke, who tells us in the beginning of his gospel, that he has undertaken a careful investigation of all that has occurred so that you may know, O oh excellent Theophilus, the things you have believed. In other words, I have done the investigative work. I interviewed the witnesses. Cleopas, I want you to know this now and go back and read this story now with this in mind. Cleopas, the reason why he's named is because Luke found him and said, what happened? He's an eyewitness. And scholars will tell you that the reason why Cleopas is named is likely because he's the one that Luke actually interviewed. The Bible is full of these kinds of things, full of these kinds of names. Look at the story of Simon, and Simon of Cyrene as he was forced to carry Jesus' cross. Do you know who's named in that story as well? Alexander and Rufus, his kids. And do you know why they're named? Because they were interviewed. They never show up again, just there. That's the depth and the credibility of the scriptures. These are not just carefully invented fables. People who were there were interviewed and their names are there. That's sort of a side, that's, that one's free. Um, but I want you to see something before we go into the scripture here. They're walking side by side and that's gonna be an important metaphor for us to actually see as we, as we passage through this, as we go on this walk with these two men. They're walking side by side and they're destitute and they're absolutely shattered by what's going on. So <clears throat> let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 18. That very day, two of them were going to, to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were, walk, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, of course, Jesus' death and all that. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is the conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Pause for a moment, because they paused. Consider this, they're walking on this road and up comes this guy who they don't know yet. And they're walking and they're talking and this guy comes up and they're like, all right, guy's walking up all of a sudden asking us what we're talking about. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And instead of doing the sort of the thing you do in, you know, in the city, if you're walking down Rochester Road at downtown, you're like, yeah, we're talking about the weather. You know, be gone. They paused. They stood still, looking sad. That's the depth of the devastation of the wreckage of their expectations. That's the depth of it. Then one of them, named Cleopas, there's his name, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Which is hilarious. <laughs> now, jumping forward to Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27, same chapter. Of course, he hears from them the story that they've been telling, that Jesus, you know, they thought he was the Messiah and he was going to deliver people and all this stuff. But some people in our, amongst us are saying he's risen from the dead. We're having a hard time believing this. We know that because they were looking sad. They weren't rejoicing just yet because they hadn't believed the story. They had heard it, but not quite believed it yet. And so they had, see, they had see, heard this story and they're thinking, ah, wishful thinking. And then Jesus says to them, 
O foolish ones and slow of heart. That's important, put a pin in that. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, they were kept from seeing him until they saw him break bread. Now, the, the, the rest of the story goes on is that they're talking with him and they're traversing with him and at some point they stop and have a little meal together and Jesus breaks bread. And at that moment, when they see him break bread the way they've always seen him break bread, the way he, they've always seen him give thanks, the familiarity and the intimacy floods everything that's happened and they suddenly realize who he is and they recognize this is the Jesus our friends have been telling us is risen from the dead and then he vanishes. But now the rejoicing comes in. Luke chapter 24, verses 32 to uh, 35. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? In other words, they were starting to feel something even before he broke bread. Because he was relating to them all the things from Moses and, and the prophets, all the things concerning himself. They began to see all those things we had believed before. And our expectations were a little askew, a little off. But this guy comes alongside of us and he's teaching us that this is what must happen in order for all these things to be, to be achieved. All the prophecies from Moses on down, even before Moses, all of these things were pointing to a birth of a Messiah, of a virgin, from, from a virgin who would become the savior of the world. And he has to die and then rise from the dead. Don't you see all of this in the corpus of the scriptures you're already so familiar with? And so that begins to burn in their hearts. In other words, there's an understanding that they start to have. There's information being downloaded into their mind things they already knew, but now they're getting the fresh perspective, the correct perspective, and so that begins to burn in their hearts. They're slow hearts. They were slow of heart to understand, but then all it takes is a little bit of explanation. All it takes is a little bit of power and understanding and connection to get the, the furnace, which is dead, with no coals and no wood in it, to start, you put a little coal, you put a little spark, and the fire begins. And were our hearts not burning within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathering together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now that's important for a moment, okay? Because the Bible already tells us in in previous verses that they only knew him, they were kept from seeing him until they saw something familiar, something intimate. And then they repeat the fact that we couldn't see him until we saw him break bread. Put a pin in that one too. There's so much here. There's just so much here. I could go on and on for days and days and days talking about this one story. I won't. You'll be happy to know. However, what this story tells us is that on the road to Emmaus, in the middle of these men's deep despair, these men are in deep despair. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus actually takes the knowledge and the information of the scriptures and begins to say that there have been foretellings of my coming 
not only my, my, my birth of a virgin, not only of the miracles that I would do, not only of the titles that I would carry, but of the death and the resurrection that I would eventually achieve for the sake of the salvation of the world. They begin, he says that over and over again. Now, he shows them that and they begin to believe it. And the understanding is, is, is seeping in. See, this is an Easter passage, but it's critical to understanding the meaning of Christmas and why there's such joy now. Why is there joy to the world? Why do we put lights on things? Because the light of the world, them who have sat in darkness have seen a great light. My eyes have seen. Jesus told Cleopas and his companion that the scriptures were pregnant with signs and messages of his forecoming. Now that's interesting all by itself because you read Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus was even born about how a virgin shall conceive and have a son and she shall call his name Emmanuel. So the scriptures are pregnant with meaning, pregnant with prophecy about a woman who would become pregnant of the Holy Spirit. So how's that for irony? Is that the scriptures themselves are are impregnated by the Holy Spirit with all of this prophecy to come so that a woman could actually embody the impregnation of the Holy Spirit so that the word of God made flesh, God the word made flesh, would actually fulfill God's word given to us centuries before. That's amazing. Now you think about it, and they hear this from Jesus that all the prophets have led up to this point. The scriptures have all pointed up to this point. Now these men were likely amongst at times with the 12. At times when Jesus' pedigree and his past and his authority were all being challenged by the religious authorities. You know, you look at John chapter eight. We, don't, we won't go there just yet, but John chapter eight, you, uh, I'll just explain a couple of things. Jesus is talking to people, and of course the famous passage, uh, who, uh, who, uh, who, who the sun sets free is free indeed, that whole thing where people are starting to believe in him, and, and, and John is very careful to say that there are those who don't believe in him, and there are those who do, and there are those who come to believe in him in this whole dialogue. You know how that dialogue ends? This whole part where he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It ends with them wanting to stone him. Because he claims to be God, incarnate. He claims to be that. He goes through this whole thing about who he is and where he's come from, and they're starting to challenge him now and say, you weren't really born of a virgin. You're the illegitimate son of some woman. And some of the legends that had crept up in Jesus's day was that his mother had actually been raped by a Roman uh, uh, centurion named Pantera. And that was the story that was being circulated. And he was saying, you're the, your father, the devil. And they're saying, we don't know who your dad really is. There's this whole thing going on. And so Jesus lays it on him right then and there. In John 8, 56, he begins to actually unravel who he really is saying he is because they're having suspicion of it. And now he unravels it and he says this, your father Abraham, you're, you're claiming you're of your father Abraham, but if you had been truly children of Abraham, you would have rejoiced at what you're seeing and hearing. Your father Abraham, he says in verse 56, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So in other words, there's prophecy going on. 
there's something happening in the Old Testament that is pointing to this very day. Now, what Jesus is alluding to is several different areas within the Old Testament. You look at Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 22, where you have these promises that are given to Abraham that you will possess the land and, your, and through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The whole entire world will be blessed through your offspring. It's not just this insular people at this particular time in this one little country. That's not the point. The point is that all of these prophecies would happen. All of these things I'm promising you, Abraham, will happen so that through you, through your progeny, through your eventual bloodline, the world will be saved. That's a staggering thing to hear. Not just you're going to get a bunch of land and a bunch of stuff. It's all that stuff serves a greater purpose, and that purpose is to, is to save the entire world. And then Abraham is told, by the way, the son that I told you this would all come through, Isaac, I want you to go and kill him now. So Cleopas and his companion are walking on the road to Emmaus with wrecked expectations. Abraham has this expectation of through him, the progeny that comes through him will save the world. And then God says, I'm going to challenge how you think about that just now. And so Abraham has some wrecked expectations. And yet he fulfills the command. He says, the Lord wants. And so the interesting prophecy that happens, the interesting sign of what's to come is that as Isaac is going up with Abraham to the mountain. Two things interestingly happen is that first Abraham tells his servants, you guys stay here, we're going up the mountain and we will come back. Abraham already knows in his mind, this boy, God's gonna do something miraculous. I have wrecked expectations, I don't understand this, but God's gonna do something he trusted on his own road up a mountain that something good's gonna happen from this. I don't know what, I can't explain it, but something's gonna happen. Maybe God will raise my son from the dead. And then when his son, second thing that happens is his son says, Father, we have the wood, we have the kindling, we have all the stuff, where's the sacrifice? And then Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And then he does. He substitutes Abraham's son with a ram caught in a thicket, which is a symbol, which is a prophecy of what is to come, is that ultimately there will be no more bulls and goats and pigeons and other things that are sacrificed for us because the blood of animals, beings that are lesser than us, can only serve to cover up the sin of humanity by proxy, by symbol. But the one who is a perfect human being who sheds his blood, that one is the one who can wash it away and we have no more need of sacrifice. That was what was being foretold through Abraham. And so when Jesus says, Abraham longed to see my day, it's because he longed longed and he rejoiced because he had wrecked expectations that were ultimately fulfilled and satisfied and joy came from seeing that this is not the way it's going to be Abraham I have something better and of course their response was you're not yet 50 years old and yet you claim you have seen Abraham he didn't say that he said Abraham saw me but John 8:58, of course, is, the, is, is, the, is the, the pivot here, is that he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Now that statement is interesting because it's not a grammatical error. What he is saying there is, he's saying exactly what you think he's saying. He is taking God's name unto himself. When Moses said, who will I say is the one who sent me to God because he's gonna come and free the Israelites or the Hebrews from Egypt, he says, say that I am 
has sent you. That's his name. And Jesus takes that name upon himself. So not only is he claiming to be pre-existent, that not only does he, did he pre-exist Abraham, and he's not just really old, he says, I am. I always existed. I have no actual age. And they knew what he was saying, and they picked up stones to kill him. You see, the, the point here is that you can have all the evidence in the world. And if your heart's not right, all the prophecy, you're just not going to take it in. You're not going to know what's going on. These men in John chapter 8, they were believing in him. They were starting to see more and more about who Jesus actually was. They had seen the miracles. They, they had heard the things he was saying. <coughs> they were admiring his, his teaching. They were starting to believe in him. John chapter 8 tells us they were starting to believe in him. And yet they had picked up stones to kill him. The heart isn't always right. Even when you start to cognitively understand, when your brain recognizes this is truth, you can intellectually assent to certain things without actually taking them in. Now others had had this as well. Similar encounters. We read in Matthew chapter 2 of the story of the wise men, the magi who come from the east, who have seen the star and they see it moving and they recognize this is the fulfillment of some prophecy here about the Messiah who will be born. And so they go from very far away and they begin to follow that star and they come to Jerusalem and they're saying, where is the, where is the Messiah? Where, we're here looking for him. And Herod hears this. So you read in Matthew chapter two, verses three to eight, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now this is interesting. Why is Herod troubled by the fact that the Magi are coming and saying, the deliverer of all Israel, the king of Israel, is actually being born right now? The reason is, is because Herod is king of Israel and does not want to stop being king of Israel. Can you imagine being told God has sent the Messiah and you have so much pride in you, so much selfish ambition in you that you actually think you're gonna outscheme this one. This is the whole point of scripture. In fact, let me prove it to you. Very next thing, he says, he inquires, this is, this is amazing by the way, he assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people, in other words, the religious leaders, people who know the Torah, who know the prophets, he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. Not where some guy was to be born, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Again, the signals from the past echoing into the present and eventually coming into the future. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That sounds like excellent news. But to Herod, not so great. Who knows why? Because it's the, it's the, the sin and the, and the ambition in his heart. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, and this is a total lie, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And then of course what we know happens is that Herod orders the death of every baby under two years old in Bethlehem. That's wicked, that's evil. But this reference in Matthew chapter two is a direct reference when the chief, uh, uh, the, the chief priests and the scribes say it'll be in Bethlehem where he's born. They don't they make a wild guess, they're quoting 
from Micah chapter five, verse two. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. They know where the Messiah is to be born. This is a messianic prophecy in Micah chapter five, verse two. Now, Herod is actually asking, where will the Messiah come? Where will he be born? They say it's in Bethlehem. We get this from the Old Testament. It's happening in our day. We're literally seeing prophecy fulfilled right in front of our eyes. Now, there's more to it than this, by the way. This is the, 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 the depth and richness of scripture. See, at the end of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, it says who the, the Messiah, who, his, his coming is, is coming forth from old, from ancient days. Now, it's not the same thing exactly, but the language is strikingly similar to Daniel, to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where Daniel sees a vision, and he sees a vision of the Messiah, of the incarnation of God in the earth, the one who is to rule over heaven and earth at the end of days, at the, cre- at the end of all recorded history. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's a divine title, not by the way, not a human title. That's a divine title. How do I know? Here's what the next verse says. And he came to the ancient of days. Does that sound familiar? Like Michael chapter five, verse two. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion to the son of man, And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Not some, not just you, the Jews, but all people. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's amazing. It's powerful. It's specific. And in Luke chapter one, verse 33, when Gabriel the angel talks to Mary and gives her the news that she will conceive a child even though she's never been with a man, he says to her of this child, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. That sounds just like Daniel chapter seven. It's all weaving together, friends. The weaving is getting tighter and tighter. The cloth is being made. The loom is at work. Something beautiful is happening here. Now, the reality is though, when you look at Herod's story, when you look at the folks who were talking to Jesus in John chapter eight, when you look at so many different people across the centuries in fact, and maybe even sitting in this room, the reality is information doesn't always lead to belief, even when you can assent to that information doesn't always lead to belief because information doesn't always lead you to correct conclusions. Let me just give you a silly illustration of this. So my girls, Nadia and Lyal, they had taken one of these aptitude uh, uh, sort of assessments in school. You know, there's this computer program, you type in some stuff like your interests, what you're good at, what you like, are you outgoing, are you introverted, <clears throat> what academic things you're interested in, all this, and then it spits out at you using some you'll see in a moment, not so fancy technology, actually, um, what you should be good at, what careers are for you. So, Lyell puts in her stuff, and out pops this assessment, that she should be a dental assistant or a floor installer. (laughs) Nadia's is even more hilarious, because Nadia should be a hotel receptionist, not just any receptionist, but a hotel receptionist, or a blacksmith. When was this computer program written? In the 1600s? Do they even have blacksmiths anymore? 
And then their friend, this one is a little bit of an indictment on religious people, I suppose, but it said their, their friend did it and, and, and out popped these uh, ideas that this person should be a comedian, a magician, or a religious figure. <laughs> That's a little cutting too close to home, I think, <laughs> on that one. But not the, not the news that every parent longs to hear when you come home from school after all this time and saying, what does it say you should be? A comedian. My point is, is that a lot of information doesn't always lead you to something valid. Interpreting that information is sometimes a matter of the validity of the, the process through which you interpret that information. So you have Herod. Herod now, I, I want to dwell on this a little bit longer. Herod had recognized the legitimacy of the prophecy. Just put that in your mind for a moment. Herod recognized that the prophecy had come from the Almighty, he recognized that it was being fulfilled by the power of the Almighty. And yet, his selfish ambition blinded him to all of that. The information didn't matter. It just didn't matter. Now, it's become popular in you know, the past few decades to argue that Christianity is valid because you can see all these specific prophecies in the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus and only in Jesus. And there's all these prophecies you add up and the, and the, and the probability exceeds all you know, uh, bounds of reason and therefore you should believe in Jesus uh, for those reasons. And I get all that and that's fine. But the reality is there's plenty of people who would see all that and say, yeah, so what? So, I mean, look, I, I sat in an office across the table from a guy uh, I worked with. <clears throat> and he was an atheist guy, and he would walk into our, my office every so often. And every, so, uh, every time there was a natural disaster, especially if a natural disaster happened to Christians, he'd walk in and say, oh, it looks like the God you love so much dropped the roof of a church on a bunch of his followers yesterday. He'd say stuff like that. Um, and then he'd make a joke, and he actually was a funny guy, despite that horrible example. Um, Actually, he was a funny guy, and we would engage in conversations, but one time he did it, and I just had enough. I'm like, okay, whoa, 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 you can't walk in and walk out like that. You gotta sit down now. You, you asked for it, you did it, you gotta, ask, you gotta sit down. <laughs> and I said, so why don't you believe? What's, what's, what's the problem? He says, there's not enough evidence. I'm like, okay, what qualifies as evidence? Maybe you've heard me tell this story before, but if you have, well, you're gonna get it twice. <laughs> Maybe even four times, but. Um, I said, what qualifies as evidence? And he said, I'll tell you what qualifies as evidence for me. If God really wanted me to believe in him, if that was so important to him, why doesn't he make it more obvious? Why isn't there a big golden cross in the sky, so big that we could not possibly deny it, like as big as the moon kind of a thing, and that every morning when I woke up, music came from that cross, and the words of John 3.16 emanated for all people to hear. That would convince me. I said, really, that would convince you? He said, yeah. That kind of evidence would convince me. I said, so wait a minute, let me ask you a question. And I knew this about him, he's a smoker. Um, and I said, hey, when you started smoking, well, how old were you? He said, 17. I said, great, okay, so you're 17. Uh, did you know at the time that smoking was both bad for you and addictive? Yeah, and it could kill you, right? It could give you cancer and you could die from it. Yeah, and in fact, it was likely that nothing good comes from smoking, only bad comes from smoking. You knew all that. Yep, I knew all that. And then you started anyway? Yeah. I said, tell me again how evidence matters to you. <laughs> um, my point is, isn't to like put a guy in his place. My point is, I knew this guy, we're friends, and I can do that kind of a thing. Um, but here's my point, is that not only does someone like him 
But each one of us has to ask ourselves over and over again, is God working in our life and whatever thing we're having, do we actually care about what this information means? It's not just information. You open up a book and read with a sort of dispassionate academic interest. It means something. And before I judge him too harshly, let me tell you why I can actually say the things I said to him. It's because before I became a believer, I was on a nine-year journey to find the answers. I found the answers sufficient enough to give my life to Christ within two years. I wrestled with them, not with whether they were true, but whether what it would mean if they were true for seven more years. Because the answers are not hard to find, but they are hard to accept. And so before I judge this man too harshly or anybody else too harshly, I have to look at my own history and say, you know what? Every person struggles with it sometimes. And sometimes we don't do it just out of stubbornness or arrogance or pride. Sometimes we do it because we have some pretty serious wrecked expectations. We can't see it. And you can look at the Bible and the Old Testament and you can see all the prophecies of the Messiah who's to come. You can see them fulfilled in the pages of the new. You can even be Cleopas, walking alongside in your despair. You and a companion walking side by side. And as despair walks on the road to Emmaus, truth sidles up and walks side by side with you. And even then, you're still slow of heart. Did you notice what he said? He didn't say you were slow of mind. He didn't say you didn't know enough. He said you're just slow of heart. He did call him foolish, and there's another thing, all the, but he's the Lord, he can do that, I can't. Um, this is slow of heart. Some of us are slow of heart, not because we don't have the information, not because we're arrogant and prideful, not because we shake our fist at God, but because we're incredibly, incredibly wounded. You know, Abraham had those shattered expectations too. But truth and transcendence has a way of kindling the fire of hope. So that's the first point I want to make to you. Is that you can look at all the prophecies and you can look at all this stuff, but at some point you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to me? I don't mean that you interpret the truth in a way that, that fits your preferences. I mean, what does this call me to change, to be, to act like? Is there more to it than just a bunch of ideas? Is there someone I need to give my allegiance to? And then you'll have, an, you'll have an experience, I think, like Cleopas and his companion, where you get that burning in your heart, where something begins to, to, to form, and then it clicks. I mean, can, you, can you just imagine this for a moment with me? You're Cleopas, you're walking down this road, your expectations have been shattered, they're completely wrecked, there's ruins all around you, and then you begin to hear this story about how from all the way from Moses up until that very day, all these things were taking shape and you're actually, not figuratively, you're literally a part of that history and you're being told by the one who wrote that history. Can you imagine the awe you must feel? Friends, I wanna tell you something. The church proper is a part of that history. 
Your life is actually a part of that history. It is not finished being written yet. Yes, the advent has come, and yes, the resurrection has happened, and yes, we are free. But there is a denouement to all this. There's something at the end we all take a part in, and we all have something to do in this life. You are a part when you act Christianly, when you give your life to him, when you serve others, by serving in the way as I have loved you, this new command we've been given, you become part of that history. Your history is written into the history of all history hitherto and all to come. You ought to be in awe of that and take a pause for a moment and say, I get to be Cleopas? These things are explained to me? How remarkable, how remarkable. But you know what happened though? And this is the second point I want to give. Their hearts were burning within them as the information came. But joy came. A coalescing of all the information lit a spark, became an explosion in their, in, in, in their spirits when they saw him break bread. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because they were intimate with Jesus for years before and Jesus was reminding them that a bunch of head knowledge about who he is never replaces being with him. The Lord of all history wants to share a meal with you. We just did that. That's what communion's all about. How's your intimacy with Christ? Is Bible reading a chore? Do you get it done? Or do you sit and open that book and pray to someone who's a guest at your table, to someone who wrote that very book, and find intimacy with him? And if you haven't in a while, can I suggest to you that if you walk that road and it's a little long, and you even feel a little bit of burning in your heart, strive for that intimacy, because then you'll know something. Then you'll know something of who he really is, and it'll change things for you. Let me wrap this up with another Old Testament look forward to the Redeemer to come. And from the book of Job, someone else whose expectations were wrecked. You see it so many times when the redeeming promise comes in the midst of wrecked expectations. Job, inflicted with terrible suffering, lost everything. Yet in Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 26, he was able to say in the midst of his wrath expectations, for I know that my redeemer lives, that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I don't know if you recognize how deep and beautiful that actually is because here is the oldest book of the Bible possibly written. The book of Job is likely the oldest book of the Bible. It doesn't tell you the oldest stories, but it's probably the oldest book of the Bible. And Job is talking about a redeemer before the Abrahamic prophecies, before the Mosaic covenant and all these things. He's talking about a redeemer who is to come. He recognizes his need for a redeemer because he's not good enough to save himself. He recognizes that his body will die one day. He recognizes that there will be an incarnation in the flesh of his redeemer on the earth. And he recognizes that though his body dies, it will be raised again. That's the gospel. Centuries and centuries before we ever heard it in Matthew. The 
this is a unified book, giving you a unified message in a beautiful way. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. Scholars have pointed out in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this prophecy is really interesting because if you notice something, it's all incarnational. Jesus is 100% human and he's 100% God. He has all the qualities of being human and he has all the qualities of being God. And what Isaiah foretells to us in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is that unto us a child, the human, is born. But the son is not born because the son always existed. And that is the incarnation once again. From Abraham to Moses to Job to Jesus' own lips and Isaiah and all this, it all leads to one place so that your eyes may see. And when you are intimate with him, your eyes will see. So let me end with Job because there's that section in the end of Job where Job's gone through all he's gone through and his friends have given him all kinds of terrible advice. And at the end, Job you know, has been asking questions. Why, 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 I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it. And then God comes in chapter 38 out of the whirlwind and he says, gird yourself like a man. Like in other words, you've been asking some questions of me, now I'm gonna ask some questions of you and you better be able to take it. Now that's probably true, that's probably, well it is true, that's what it says. But part of that attitude isn't just a humbling of Job. Can I suggest to you that possibly it's also a nurturing of Job? Maybe it's not just, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I set these stars this way? Where were you when the rivers were made this way? Where were you when I told the waters to stop going any further? Where were you when all these beasts of the sea, these mighty things you can't even fathom, I actually made these things. Where were you? He could have said it that way, but also he could have said it this way. So where were you when this happened? And where were you when this happened? Job, I was there for all of this. So what I'm asking you to do as the one who did all this, I'm asking you to trust me. It's not just putting him in his place, it's actually consoling Job. Trust me. Cleopas and his companion were shattered. Abraham was shattered. And so many of us have been shattered. And we sit in the ruins of our wrecked expectations. Douglas McKelvey, in his book, Every Moment Holy, he has these liturgies that he shares. And I wanna quote from one that I've read many times It's a liturgy for the death of a dream. In other words, it's a prayer when you feel like your dreams have have died and you're sitting there with erect expectations. And I've prayed this a lot. And the prayer goes like this to God. You are the king of my collapse. You do not answer what I demand, but what I do not even know to ask. Now take this dream this husk, this chaff of my desire, and reform, give it back reformed and remade according to your better vision, or do not give it back at all. Here, in the ruins of my wrecked expectations, let me make this best confession. Not my dreams, O Lord, not my dreams, but yours be done. All of our expectations from the Old Testament on have been to make Jesus into something sometimes we don't actually think he intended himself to be. Certainly Cleopas didn't. But there's a dream that that the Lord has. There's a vision that the Lord has that's better. 
And whatever your dream has been, whatever shattering that's happened, can you just trust him? That the dream will be better than you ever imagined if you just yield to it? I know I have. I know I've had to do that, and many of us have. Despair walks on Emmaus Road. Truth walks alongside of it. Intimacy and understanding join the party as they begin to walk down this road and reveal to them something beautiful. That this Christmas message is not just about some kid being born in some place in some weird circumstances. It's about the birth of the Messiah. Friends, Easter makes Christmas meaningful. But Christmas makes Easter possible. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and brighter morn. Let's pray. Father, we are just grateful for the fact that there is so much information, and I've only touched a scintilla of it, from your scriptures well beyond the centuries before Jesus, even into time immemorial, Lord, before the foundations of the world, that tell us what your plan was all along. And sometimes we are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Lord, may it not be that we just imbibe in information and dismiss it because of whatever things we have in our lives, whether it's our brokenness or it's our arrogance or it's our pride or it's our dismissiveness or if it's our busyness or our distractions. May that not be the case, Lord. May we see where this is all pointing. But I pray, Lord, more than anything else, that amongst your followers today, Lord, and amongst those who have yet to awaken to their own hungers, that there is an intimacy with your son, that they can share a meal, and that this Advent season reveals to them, to each one of us, just how near your son is to us. We thank you for breaking into this history, for breaking into this world, and reshaping and reforming our wrecked expectations according to your better vision. In your son's name, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you. Have a great day.